we're in the book of Luke, and I think it will come up uh, in a minute on the caption uh, of where I'm coming from. Um, the, the scripture passages will come up. Uh, it's quite a long bit of a section, so I'm going to do, instead of reading the whole lot out, because we'll probably be here for a while, I'm going to do an overview of the passage of scripture, and I think it will... But I want to read just a, a passage of scripture for a minute, just one, one verse, if I may, and it's in Luke chapter 22 uh, verse 47 and 48 and it says while he was still speaking a crowd came up and man who was called Judas one of the twelve was leading them and he approached Jesus to kiss him but Jesus asked him Judas are you betraying the son of man with a kiss so as you can see the passages are on there and that's where I say we're still in the book of Luke uh, and it's guilty but who? First of all, I'll tell you a bit of a story. I like my stories to start with. Three executives were being ferried across Seattle in a helicopter when without warning this huge cloud descends upon the helicopter. And the helicopter couldn't go above it and it couldn't go below it. It's too dense, too dangerous to go below. So we kind of slowly goes through the cloud and in the distance it sees a building the helicopter and it gets near the building and, he, and the pilot says to the co-pilot see the map in the corner, turn it over and write something on the map and on the map he writes where are we when they get close to the building they obviously the people in the building um, see they're in distress see the sign, where are we so one of the guys in the office gets a big piece of paper and uh, write something on the back and he held it up to the window and he says you're in a helicopter (laughs) (laughs) from this the pilot punches the coordinates into the manual and he flies the executives to their destination lands it safe and everybody's well one of the executives turned round when they landed he said how did you know where we were from a sign that only read you're in a helicopter? And the pilot says, well, that's quite easy, really. He says, I just knew there had to be at the Microsoft building. <laughs> because they gave me an answer that was technically correct, technically correct but absolutely useless. <laughs> there, is a point, there is a point to that. Okay. When we look at the crucifixion of Christ, one of the questions that has to be answered is, Who is most responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? Who was most responsible for putting him on the cross? So we are coming from these passages of scripture, by the way. The question, I suppose, over the years has puzzled many. I'm sure there's been films made about it. Uh, There's been books about it. Who actually put him on the cross? And that's the very question we're going to look at today. Who is most guilty? See, I can give you a technically correct answer to that question. It was a nameless squad of Roman soldiers, commanded by a centurion, who crucified Christ. The details are sketchy. We don't know their names. Scripture gives no indication of their feelings as they carried out the death sentence on Christ. They, uh, they were trained men, as we know, And they were trying to kill uh, criminals, basically. Crucifixion, as we know, was a horrible, gruesome act, but the Bible doesn't go into that. It just tells us that 
It took place and Jesus was crucified by an anonymous squad of Roman soldiers who hammered in the nails, raised him on a cross, stuck a spear in his side, which all resulted in his death. I'll give you a technically correct answer. But if that is the only answer you will settle for, we, you, have not looked deep enough. We need to look at the crucifixion like an old paint-covered chair. Got loads of those chairs that we put loads of paint on. What we need to do is strip away those layers and reach a conclusion, a conclusion, sorry, who actually crucified Christ. So we're going to strip away three layers of the chair. And I haven't got any PowerPoints, by the way, because the passage of Scripture, as you can see, they're quite immense. It's quite long, so we'll be here all day with PowerPoints. So uh, we're not going to have any PowerPoints, okay? So we're going to strip away uh, the three layers, and we're going to look at three men whom Scripture holds particularly guilty of the death of Christ. The first one, obviously, we just know as I read, was Judas. The first question, which is always raised about Judas... And I've had many conversations. How can Judas be held responsible if his betrayal of Jesus was predicted? You always hear that. His betrayal was predicted, but doesn't mean he wasn't a free agent. Any more than any Old Other Testament prophecies about Christ's death. There are numerous Old Testament prophecies about the death of Christ, and Scripture quite clearly says it was his choice. Well, in the same way, Judah's choice was exactly the same. It was his choice to turn Jesus over to the authorities. And it was his choice that crucified Christ. And have you ever wondered, and perhaps you haven't, why, what was his motivation for doing so? Again, this is one of the questions that's history. Why would he want to do that? Why would he want to do that? And again, there's many books about that. However, when you turn to scripture, you will find the answer. So why did he betray him? It is as simple as it was sinful. In John chapter 12, which is, you remember, is the story of Jesus being anointed by Mary with a bottle of very expensive perfume. Judas protests the money could have been used to help the poor. But John goes on to say in John chapter 12 verse 6, not that he cared for the poor, but he was in charge of the disciples' funds and often dipped into them for his own use. Judas was stealing the money. So the first point we note as to who crucified Jesus, we can say Judas's greed put Christ on the cross. His greed crucified Jesus. And there is more evidence in scripture to support this. After Jesus was anointed by the perfume, Matthew records that Judas left the room he went to the chief priest and he said to them in Matthew chapter 26 verse 15, How much will you pay me to get Jesus into your hands? And they gave him 30 silver coins. And you know what? Judas was not a unique person. He's only one of many people, church, who have sold out Jesus. Judas is simply a powerful illustration of a principle taught by Jesus when he said in Mark chapter 8 verse 36 how does, he, how does a man benefit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul in the process you cannot serve God and money 
you will ultimately make a choice exactly like the choice Judas made. And his greed crucified Jesus. Judas is a tragic example of what happens when people go all out for materialism and in the process they lose their souls. Judas made a poor choice. What about you? What about you? Now we come to the second layer of paint. Underneath this layer we find the leaders of the Jewish, the Jews, sorry, in particular Caiaphas, the high priest. He's the only one that clearly exhibits all their motives. You can put all the leaders' motives into this one guy. He's the one who orchestrated the worst miscarriage of justice in legal history. <laughs> Lawyers who have studied the legal system of the Jewish people of the time are quite clear that in his eagerness to get rid of Jesus, Caiaphas broke the law. He didn't just break it once. He broke it many times. He shouldn't have allowed the trial to go ahead at night. He shouldn't have allowed it to be held out with the Hall of Hewn Stone in the temple. Now, the Hall of Hewn Stone, I'm going to leave you to look that up. Okay? I'm not going to go into that detail. He shouldn't have allowed a criminal case to proceed during the Passover season for a start off. He could only allow the case to finish on the same day if it was not a guilty verdict. He didn't have two witnesses examined separately before the trial and he certainly did not have all the evidence for the court before the trial even started because this time the verdict was already decided before the trial even started what happened that would cause these men to conduct an unfair trial on Christ scripture again tells us Matthew records that the chief priests and the Jewish leaders were trying to find a way to get the Romans to pass the death sentence on Christ. So they pack him off in change to Pilate. But Pilate at this stage wasn't conned by their claim that they cared about the, the, the Roman Empire. He was having none of that. He knew what their real motive was. Because Matthew says in chapter 27 verse 18... For he knew very well that the Jewish leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy because of the popularity with the people. Pilate knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. It was nothing more than sheer jealousy that motivated them. So the second point we note as to who crucified Jesus, the envy of Caiaphas crucified Christ. He and the other officials viewed Jesus as a threat to their position and to the prejudice that they held. Even though they hated Herod, they were no different from him when you closely examine them. Do you remember Herod heard the new king had been born? And the first thing he thought, he's a threat and I've got to get rid of him. And that's exactly what Caiaphas and the other leaders thought exactly the same. They convicted Jesus, not because he was a sinner, but because they were. Greed and envy handed the Son of God over. It did then and it still does today. Let's look at another paint, another coat, let's strip another one off. Come on, Rick. 
as we strip it away, one name appears, one person whose fingerprints are all over the cross. Pilate. It seems that Pilate was a man who valued justice and we reached that conclusion by the very fact that three different times he publicly declared that Jesus was an innocent man. In Luke chapter 23 verse 22, once more for the third time he demanded, why, what crime has he committed? I have found no reasons to sentence him to death. Pilate tried to avoid sentencing Jesus to death, but Pilate's downfall was that he was a politician. He knew that releasing Jesus would not please the crowd. So he tried to please the mob with four cowardly compromises. Giving them what they wanted without this whole fiasco turning into a gross miscarriage of justice. First, what does he do? He packs him off to Herod, claiming Galilee was Herod's responsibility. However, Herod, what did Herod do? He shipped him straight back. Secondly, he tried to compare Jesus with a gangster, (coughs) believing the mob wouldn't want a violent thug released. Well, what did they do? They chose Barabbas. (laughs) They let him go. Third, he said, he decides he'll have Jesus flogged with an inch of, of his life. And he thought, you know, if I get him as close to death as possible, perhaps that will solve the issue. Perhaps that will be okay with them. You don't satisfy a pack of wolves, church, by giving them a taste of blood. You don't. They want more blood. And finally, and the fourth thing he did, with great pomp and ceremony, what does he go and do? He brings the bowl of water out, washed his hands in full view of everybody, and in Matthew 20, 20, 27, 24, he said, I am innocent, of the blood of this good man, the responsibility is yours, and the Jew said, bring it on. Bring it on. Every attempt he was trying to make to avoid the death sentence of Jesus failed. And then the Jewish leader said something that totally sealed it. John chapter 19 verse 12 reads, Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders told him, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who declares himself as king is a rebel against Caesar. From that point forward, Potter drops all the kind of all the business about Jesus being an innocent man. He forgets all that. Pilate's fear crucified Jesus. Pilate was afraid. He was afraid that the world would get back to Caesar, that he was not a fit governor. Afraid the world would get out to his peers, that he was a weak governor. Afraid that people would become restless and revolt against him. Yes, Pilate wanted justice. But fear played a higher motivation in Pilate's life than justice. And that's the lesson we must learn from Pilate. People must decide what their ultimate fear is going to be. That's something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. Don't be afraid of those who kill only your bodies, but can't touch your souls. Fig only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, Pilate decided that his ultimate fear was every politician's fear, falling out with the people. And don't we have that with Brexit? Right? 
had to bring, had to bring it in. <laughs> well, everybody else does. <laughs> That's what Mark chapter 15, verse 15 says. Then Pilate said, uh, then Pilate, afraid of a riot and anxious to please the people, released Barabbas to them and he ordered Jesus flogged with a leaded whip and handed him over to be crucified. That was Pilate's fear. What's yours? Write this down. Greed put Jesus on the cross. Envy held the nails. And fear hammered them in. Listen again. Greed put Jesus on the cross. Envy held the nails. And fear hammered them in. But the scripture doesn't stop there, church. We've looked around the cross. We've identified the guilty. We have to look above the cross and see who else is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You've probably seen this picture. Holman Hunt has that famous picture. It shows Jesus at the doorway of a carpenter shop as a boy and he comes away from the bench because he's stretching his limbs out and he stretches, he's in the doorway, out his arms stretched like that and behind him on the wall there's a shadow that's cast and the sun shows his shadow and it's the shadow of a cross. If you look at that picture by Holman Hunt, look at it. In the background stands Mary. And she sees that shadow and there is fear of the coming tragedy in her eyes. What Holm was trying to say is that the shadow of the cross always hung over Jesus. From the moment he was born. Matthew chapter 2 verse 11 reads, Entering the house where the baby and Mary his mother were, they threw themselves down before him, worshipping Then they opened their presents and gave him gold, frankincense and mirth. And mirth, you know, is is a gift to somebody who's going to die. That's what it is. Myrrh was used to embalm the bodies of the dead. John chapter 19 verse 39 reads, Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night, came to, bringing a hundred pounds of embalming ointment made from myrrh and alos. You see, something happens at the cross that was always in the mind of God. Yes, men were guilty of an unbelievable crime ever committed. But somehow, in a mysterious way, even though their evil depravity was responsible for crucifying Jesus, God was at work. There are two ideas, these two ideas are kind of brought together in Peter's first sermon, which we obviously did do the, I think it was last week. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says, But God, following his prearranged plan, let you use the Roman government to nail him to the cross and murder him. God does not make men evil, but he does use evil men. Nor does God design treacherously, but he can design it into his plan. So we can say without a shadow of a doubt that God put Christ on the cross. The cross plan existed before Moses' church, before Jacob, before Isaac, before Abraham. And in fact, the cross plan is older than the world. In Revelation chapter 8 verse 13, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. 
And that's exactly why God could speak of the death of Jesus. His gospel being according to the scriptures. God foretold the death of Jesus. In Acts chapter 3 verse 18. But God was fulfilling the prophecies that the Messiah must suffer all things. Jesus himself said the same thing in Mark chapter 14 verse 21. I will die just as it's written about me. And the three of the sayings of Jesus on the cross are direct quotes from the Old Testament. It was God's plan. Yes, the cross exposes human weakness at its worst, but it was also the revelation of how God was going to overcome human evil. And so we can say that God was responsible for putting Christ on the cross. And you'll find that in Scripture too. In Romans 8 verse 32 it reads, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Scripture says that Judas put Christ on the cross. Scripture says that Caiaphas put Jesus on the cross. Scripture says that Pilate put Jesus on the cross. But it also says that God put him on the cross. The cross was God's A plan from the beginning. Jesus knew that before he even came. That's what the struggle was in Gethsemane. That was what it was all about. He was praying so hard he began to sweat blood, it says. And these are covered by the passages on on the board here. But the crucifixion, before the crucifixion, sorry, as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciple, the physician, Luke noted in Luke 22 verse 44, for he was in such agony of spirit that he broke into a sweat of blood with great drops of falling to the ground as he prayed more and more earnestly. It is a medical condition, and I can't pronounce this word, which I can't call it. According to this doctor, I found, Dr. Frederick Zugaby, is a well-known, it's a well-known case, and it's a clinical, clinical term called, whatever, <laughs> hematophoridus, I can't tell you, whatever, whatever it is, it's around the sweat glands, there is a multiple blood vessels in a net-like form. Under pressure of great stress, these vessels constrict. Then as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands. As the sweat glands are produced, a lot of sweat, that's what they're doing, it pushes the blood to the surface, coming out as droplets of blood. I have seen this happen. I used to train, as you you know, uh, quite seriously... Um, years ago and the guy I was helping train to, to one of the Mr Britain finals we were doing a leg press and all of a sudden the back of his head he was sweating blood the blood vessels had, had ruptured in the back of his head and there was just blood coming from his head from the sweat so I've seen it happen under stress because of the amount of weight he was pushing so I've seen it so what was the source of Jesus' great stress and anger clearly it was intense spiritual agony because we know that it says that He has to make a decision. The same decision that Adam had to make. And the same decision that you and I have to make. Will I do what I want or will I do what God wants? God asked us such a small thing of Adam, didn't he not? He put him in a great garden, paradise. Stick him in the garden. He says, you can have everything you want, Adam. Everything. Don't just go anywhere near that one tree. Don't go anywhere near it. That's all he asked of Adam. But what did he ask Jesus to do? He asked him to go and hang on a tree. That's what Jesus was wrestling with when he left Gethsemane. 
We know what his decision was because he didn't back down. And do you know why? Because Jesus died before he was killed. He died to self. He died to personal ambition. He died to personal desire. He died before he was killed. Do you know what? Jesus did not whinge. He didn't walk to the cross like a victim church. He marched to the cross as a man who had fully embraced the will of his Father. John chapter 7 verse, chapter 10 verse 17 to 18. The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might have it back again. No one can kill me without my consent. I lay down my life voluntarily. For I have the right and the power to lay it down when I want to. And also the right and the power to take it up again. For the Father has given me this right. Jesus had to make the decision. He didn't have to choose to carry it out. Throughout his ministry he could have stepped back into heaven any time he wanted to. And you know what? The devil knew that. And as you know from Matthew chapter 4, after Satan failed to tempt Jesus, God sent angels to care for Christ. See, I believe Jesus could have stepped back to, his, back to heaven with his father right there again. He could have done it. And again in Matthew 17, when Jesus spoke with Elijah and Moses, he could have returned with them then. He could have gone back. He could have avoided the cross church. But not if he wanted to accomplish the longing of his father's heart. His father loved the lost children of the world and their only hope was a perfect substitute to take the penalty that they deserve. Jesus loved his father and he knew what his father wanted. The night before he died, Jesus said in John 14 verse 13, 30, I shall not talk to you much longer because the prince of this world is on his way. He has no power over me. Satan doesn't make Jesus do anything. In John 14 verse 31, Jesus says, But the word, the world must recognise that I love the Father and that I act just as the Father commanded. So we acknowledge that Jesus' love put him on the cross. He chose the cross because he loved his Father so much. And he chose the cross because he loves me and you that much. John 15 verse 13 says, And here is how to measure it. The greatest love is shown when a person lays down his life for his friends. And in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, And the real life I now have with this body is a result of my trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Does anyone want to guess what it means to say he gave himself for me really means? Jesus put him on the cross. Yes, Caiaphas, Judas, Pilate put him on the cross. But in a mysterious, almost too complex way for us to understand, the Bible says that God put him on the cross. And it even says that God put himself on the cross. Have you thought about that? God put himself on the cross. He loved us. He put him on self, he put himself on the cross for us. And when we do business with that church, when you get that and understand that, and he finally hits us, that the very best answer as to who crucified Jesus Christ, our sins crucified Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who faith reveals all truth to us, he was the first to rise from the death, 
to die no more. He is far greater than any king on all the earth. Or praise to him who always loved us and has set us free from our sins by pouring out his lifeblood for us. Our sins crucified Christ. Though raised 2,000 years ago, the shadow of the cross falls the length of time and it reaches us today. And like Pilate, we want to say, do you know what, I'm innocent of this man's blood. I didn't have anything to do with the cross. Well, Pilate can protest all he wants. But scripture knows better. And you do too. You cannot wash your hands of the cross. Anyone got a problem with any of these? Adultery. Encouraging the activity of demons. Hatred. Fighting. Jealousy. Anger. Constant effort to get the best for yourself. Complaints and criticisms. The feeling that everybody else is wrong. Expect those in your little group. And there will be wrong doctrine, envy, murder, drunkenness, wild parties and all these sort of things. Well you know what church, there are a few of my sins in there. And in fact my list is probably a lot longer. And so is yours. Remember the song we sang, were you there when we crucified our Lord? Yes, I was there and so were you. And so were you. Not just as a spectator. You weren't there just watching it. We were participants. We will never understand the cross as something done for us, church, until we see it as something done by us. In his painting, The Elevation of Christ by Rembrandt, he depicts the cross being raised by men full of spite, malice and hate. But down in the left-hand corner of the picture... In the shadows, you can make out the face of Rembrandt himself on that picture. You see, Rembrandt understood that in a very real way, he was there too. And his sins were as much responsible for the cross as the men of that day. Our fingerprints, church, are all over the cross. And the day that hits our hearts is the day when we will get serious about being disciples. After the first gospel sermon, Peter finished by saying to the people that they had crucified Jesus. They already knew it in their heads. But that day, it says, they pricked their hearts too. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Hearing this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, What are we to do, brothers? Note this down. You will never own your cross until you own up to his. Jesus has a cross for everybody in this room. The old rugged cross must become your rugged cross if you're going to follow Jesus. You and I will never carry our own crosses until we are broken by the truth that our sins send Jesus to his. It must get out of our heads. It's got to get out of our Bibles. And it's got to get into our hearts where we are changed, broken and undone. And until that happens, the cross will still be just a story you read about and not the centre of who we are. Jesus handed over his life. Have you handed your life over to him?